We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. So are you fully converted now? Um, no, no, there's, there's the little detail of the circumcision that Eric decided to, to mention <laughs> in the... Oh, oh, ah, ah, I knew it, I knew it. See, we could have been on this before. Dan was going to downgrade the dress because we gave him shit for being Chamathal. <laughs> <laughs> That Dan, are you now? You went from billionaire to fucking hippie grad student at Berkeley, like in one fell swoop from one episode to the other. It's amazing. Tell us about the thesis you're writing on Foucault. Let's discuss that. In this hey, the black book of communism is behind my head. So. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. I'm Eric Tornberg, my co host Dan Romero, Antonio Garcia Martinez. And today we're joined by special guest, Amjad Massad. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. I want you to define what is the Replit empire today and uh, what's it going to look like at scale? Like, wh- where are you taking it? Ultimately, Replit is really like the, the most simple thing is what we say on our website when you haven't logged in, which is like make something great. It's about making great software um, and it's about bringing the fun back and making software. Um, and from, from a user experience, uh, from a user point of view, that's really what you care about. It's about the act of making software. It's about making it possible for anyone to make software. It's the story of the internet, right? It's like Instagram made it possible for anyone to be a, a photographer. YouTube made it a, a possible for anyone to be um, an influencer, creator, filmmaker. Uh, Replit make it possible for anyone to be a software creator. And the way we do it is by either uh, teaching you how to code. And so we have content around that by making the tools a lot easier, a lot more powerful. Or uh, this most recent addition is that if you don't know how to code, just describe 
your problem in plain English. And there are two ways to create software. Either AI generates the software for you or people in the community will make software for you and that's bounties. And so it's really about reducing the distance between an idea and a product. That's what we're doing is like collapsing the distance between an idea and a product. And now on top of that, we want to collapse the distance between an idea and a dollar. Like what is the shortest amount of time you can go from an idea in your head to a dollar earned uh, by implementing this idea? So we just introduced uh, this currency built into, into Replit. Uh, by the way, inspired by a lot of what's happening in crypto and Web3, uh, but it's a totally centralized ledger uh, for reasons we can, we can talk about, I'm sure. We're injecting economics into the core software creation process. So, you know, in the past, when you made software, you sort of, first of all, you have to figure out how to make it. Then you have to figure out where to deploy it. And then you have to figure out how to monetize it. And our hope is all these three things are collapsed into, into one. So making software, deploying it, and monetizing it is, is, is one. And that's really the North Star. Uh, where we are today is that you can definitely make the software. You can definitely deploy it on Replit. Um, both of these things can get 10x better and will get 10x better over the next couple of years. Um, and then monetizing it. Uh, so right now, like, you know, we have the idea of bounties and we have the idea of, of tipping and cycles are going to be programmable in a similar way to, you know, what an Ethereum programmable currency or, or Bitcoin. And, and that's another way it's going to be monetized. Uh, actually, Balaji uh, worked on this company called 21 uh, that he sold, that became Earn, and then he sold to uh, Coinbase. And I'm sure Dan can talk about this as well, but uh, he introduced this concept of grid computing, I think he called it. And the idea is that like, instead of thinking about software as a stack, you think about software as a network of services and each service or each component part can be monetized independently. So the examples they had in the 21 days is that you import a Python package and you just decorate a function and you say, that's like, you know, that's like a hundred sats per call. And I thought that was really powerful. Uh, nobody has really implemented it. And so we're, we're implementing it on Replit. So you can, you can say, like, you can call this function with like 100. I literally just signed up for Replit, Ghostwriter, right this second. And I'm getting upsold as we speak, Amjad. So you can feel good about that. I'm buying <laughs> some calls. Yeah, so <laughs> in some ways, like an Amazon Lambda function. But the idea is I, I, if I come up with some no novel implementation on Replit, I can actually serve that function to other people on Replit, people can import that into the actual software. Yeah. So that's one way it's, it's going to happen, I think, on a function level. But it could be in a service level. It could be like a Twilio-like thing, like an SMS server or service. It could be infrastructure, like it could be a database that charges you per store, gets, you know, deletes, puts, whatever. Um, so I, th I think the level of granularity, the user, the developer gets to choose that. So reducing the atomic unit of code that can actually be monetized. So I, I asked the uh, spindle engineers, I mentioned we were talking, I'm like, okay, so if you ever wanted to ask a question for the replica guy, this is the time, what do I ask? And one of the questions was, uh, do I teach my kid how to code or not? Like, will we actually have like type every line coding in the future? Or in fact, is that just going to disappear 10 years from now? And even as it is now, that's kind of not the case. 
And I can only imagine 10 years from now, if you look at things like, uh, you know, chat GBT, et cetera, that like, it'll get to the point where the thought that I actually sit there and like, you know, import, buddy, blah, or like include open, whatever, scd.h, da is never going to happen. So would, would you teach your kids to code? Yeah, I would teach my kids to code. And the reason is because like we, we can talk about the 10 year horizon in a second, but let's just talk about the next couple of years up to five years. Code is still going to be super relevant. Um, I think you're going to have to still debug the output of the LLM. Uh, so, you know, if you use Ghostwriter, you're going to see that its hit rate is like not that high. It's like probably 50% of the time tops. It'll actually give you something you like, but because it's interactive and it's inline, um, it doesn't matter. You can just accept whatever it gave you. We have ways to generate more accurate code. We're gonna we're coming up with a Chat GPT like thing inside Replit, and that uses a larger model and it'll give you more accurate code. But still, the accuracy is not gonna be a hundred percent. So you need to um, learn how to debug that code. I think surprisingly. Uh, most programmers will spend most of their time reading and understanding code. Um, that's going to put pressure on tooling for uh, for debugging and comprehension. And LLMs will help there. LLMs can explain code for you. Uh, but I think there's going to be more innovation in visualizing code and um, you know other ways uh, to debug and comprehend code. Um, but the need to understand the output generated from LLM will continue to be relevant for at least the next few years. Now, on the 10-year horizon, I think you're going to see this bimodal distribution. I think the middle end will sort of disappear. So the PHP type, you know, uh, Node.js developer might might like not be relevant at all. I think the low-level developer, the developer that's like writing C and writing Rust or whatever will continue to be super relevant, will in fact become actually more relevant and perhaps will be uh, less of them and like uh, they will charge a lot more money. They'll still be powered by AI, but I think those people that are writing like, you know, very novel, optimized, low-level code, um, I don't see that disappearing anytime soon. On the front-end side of things, you're going to see super productive front-end coders um, that um, that are heavily powered by code generation. Like it might be the case that they don't actually code. They're actually just like plumbing things together. They're talking to all of the, a lot of different LLMs. They're, um, uh, they're acting more like project managers and product managers than actual programmers. And then I think you're going to see um, end user uh, programming. So in the early vision of computers, uh, uh, on a recent podcast, I called this the Steve Jobs black pill. In the early vision of, of, of computing, uh, we thought that everyone was going to be a programmer, right? There wasn't this user programmer dichotomy. Um, and then like you know, Steve Jobs popularized uh end user, the idea of end users with user interfaces, really lovely user interfaces. And that became the dominant thing. And most people are consumers of software as opposed to the creators. I think the idea of software creation will come back. And, you know, the kind of things that I see on bounties today, because bounties is like making software more accessible by 
you're just typing English and you're getting software created by someone on the other end. That someone is probably powered by LLMs as well. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more people wanting to create, uh, you know, personal software and software for their business use case. And there's going to be a lot of end user programming. Those people will not, will not have to read code because they, the level of accuracy needed is probably not 100%. Uh, optimization needed is not like performance needs is not that high. A lot of the code is going to th be throwaway code. Um, and so if you're like a you know, professional, um, uh, you know, you're, um, you, you probably don't have to learn to code. Uh, but if you want to be sort of a low level uh, programmer, um, I think that's still going to be relevant. Or if you want to be a front end engineer, you, you need to have some knowledge of code but maybe not that deep. So that's the kind of three categories I would I would describe in 10 years. Let's understand people who don't know how to code. So like knowing how to code will actually be a low level function and then actually managing the code will actually be the high level function. Yes. Wow. So so more more John Carmacks and then fewer kind of fussy engineers in San Francisco who, you know, kind of want lattes yes. and all that other kind of Absolutely. Stuff. Like the the John Carmacks of the world will still be super relevant. Like the the 10x engineer will be a thousand x engineers. That's going to be insane. Your job's not going to be replaced by AI. Your job's going to be replaced by a human using AI, right? So, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm John. A couple months ago, we were talking with our friend Flo Carvello, and we were talking about you know he has a concern that at some point um, you know the AI is going to get so good that he you, you quote the Elon Musk thing like uh, humans are going to be house cats, whereas you think that it will always be a tool because it doesn't. Um, what was the words used? It doesn't have like its own like purpose generator or does it does it's just agency. a it's just gonna listen yeah. to what we want? Agency. Yeah. Because it doesn't have agency. Yeah. Talk about that. Like steel man both sides of that argument. Yeah. So the the steel man of of the flow side of the argument, which is essentially like I think Eliezer Yudkowsky is like the big um like the major uh sort of authority there, and then a lot of now there's another guy, Paul Cristiano, who's like an offshoot of uh, Less Wrong or the Yudkowsky. But that sort of branch of AGI is going to kill us all is was started by Eliezer. And the sort of main argument there is that if you accept the secular view that um, you know humans uh, have these meat computers, um, then there's no fundamental physical law that says you can't build this meat computers in, um, in, in, in sort of Turing machines, right? So if you accept that, then you also accept that at some point we're going to have human level AI. If you accept that, that we're going to have human level AI, uh, you also have to accept that there's going to be an AI explosion. So an AI takeoff event is basically when the AI comes online and um, trains the next generation of AI and that next generation of AI creates the next generation of AI. And that could start like a slow process over a year or two. Actually, like, you know, people at OpenAI are already using GPT-4 to train GPT-5, right? And so uh, that's already in some way happening. And that will shorten to milliseconds at some point. And that's the Ray Kurzweil's singularity, right? Where the level of exponential improvement is so tight that like you could go to lunch and come back and the world has changed. Right. So that's a singularity because you can't 
know what's next. Um, and um, then the sort of the laser branch of that view is that um, is that the most likely outcome is uh, death of humanity. And the reason that's most likely outcome is because um, it is impossible to align a, a enormous computing force that at the same time is sort of dumb. Um, it doesn't understand sort of human preferences. And therefore, um, any goal that you give it is not going to be specific enough and uh, there are a lot of uh, potential um, uh, sort of attribution uh, or explanation of that goal um, that that gets you in trouble. Do, do you remember uh, like Aladdin, uh, the Disney movie? Um, you know, the genie uh, at one part says like, uh, you know, Aladdin asked him like, make me a prince. And he's mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of gray area in that. Like, and he made him like a prince. <laughs> I was like, do you want to be a prince or do you want to make me a prince? And then at the end, um, when Jafar is has the sort of the genie, and the way Aladdin ends up winning is by tricking Jafar to to do a wish uh, to become the most powerful being in the world, and by becoming the most powerful being, he becomes a genie, and by becoming a genie, he become he goes back into the lap, right? And so um, it is sort of an argument like that where. You have a genie that's sort of dumb and like hyper autistic and doesn't really understand your emotions or your needs or context. And so formulating a goal is actually incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. And there are many likely outcomes that will kill you. So the paperclip maximizers is the, you know, quintessential example here. You at, you, you bootstrap an AI for some reason, you're a paperclip salesman. You tell the uh, AI, I want you to create uh, as many paper clips as possible because I want to sell them. I want to become a paperclip billionaire. And then the AI starts making paper clips, and then you're happy about that. But then it sort of starts taking over your city and then your country to harness resources for paper clips. Um, eventually, you can't stop it. You can't shut it down because it will kill you if you try to shut it down because that's its goal. That's sort of like the HAL 3000. I can't do that. Um, and then... Uh, eventually all of the universe is paperclip because we have this huge optimization force that's like focused on one goal. So the sort of less wrong Eliezer Tchaikovsky view of the problem is that AI explosion will happen and then we will still uh, going to be at a point where we can't uh, give specific goals to the machines and align them in a way th uh, that benefit our interests. So uh, maybe I'll pause here for you to react, but that's the death view of AGI. Um, and, and there's a lot of variations. Like I think the OpenAI people get off the uh, boat at some point in this explanation. Maybe they understand there's a risk up to a point, but they believe they can align it. And they're doing that with chat GPT every day. There's a new improvement. Uh, so there's a huge variation within that view. But I think Flow actually subscribes to the extreme view of the most likely outcome is death for all of us. Or, or house cat, right? Well, and, and I think the, they, they they would argue it's mostly death. Yeah, I call bullshit. I think they're completely fucking full of it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, all these techies, big yud, all these fuckers, like, it's literally... <laughs> okay. So, sorry, where to begin with this? 
Um, you know how like in a lot of the uh, like uh, like the sci-fi apocalypse literature that appeals to nerds, like somehow when literally the fucking world ends and there's no law and order and it's Mad Max, the guys who make the computers work somehow end up running the show. This is an expression of that fantasy, right? That n- never mind like the weird Western obsession, like the original robot was coined in a, in a, in a play in which the robots took over or the Gollum legend inside Jewish folklore in which humanity creates a thing and that thing rebels. There's always been this deep latent thing that that's going to happen, but I think it's basically bullshit. And not only that, the transhumanism is also bullshit. You literally take any of little Kurzweil's little spiels and like global reg X, like replace singularity with rapture and you get an evangelical sermon. It's basically Christian eschatology expressed in scientific form. They're just not aware of it because they don't actually read any religion. That That's what I think it is. And I, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And w- way before we get to the point that the entire universe is nothing but paperclips, I mean, you realize where do the materials come from and what countries are they mined? Are there politics there? Are, are, are they little nerds like us who spend all day like fucking blogging all day? No. <laughs> I, I don't doubt that the house cat theory, though, i.e. that like H.G. Wells time machine thing where like, you have the Eloy and the Morlocks. And it turns out we just become Eloy in which we're living in the surface of it. And the Morlocks are like machines or something else. Maybe that happened. I think that's already happened in the sense that we get worked up about these Twitter fights over nothing in which nothing happens. And like literally, if we just heard air raid sirens and Russian missiles incoming, it would suddenly change all of politics. Because holy shit, we have something in the real world to deal with. Like that, that, that's what I think is going on here, that they're all getting sucked into the Bruno-esque, like elective reality of this virtual Twitter shit and assuming that that's going to sort of dominate. And they've never had to like, you know, start a diesel engine in negative 10 degree weather <laughs> and understood what that actually means because we're so far from that anymore. Sorry. I, I, but yeah, that's my initial reaction to this. Yeah. I also agree with Antonio. It's, <laughs> I think it's like the human need for some version of millionarianism in their yes. life, right? It's like climate change, AI. Christian rapture, like pick, pick, right. you just, you, you have to have your version of that. And if you're secular, you have your own set. If you're techie, you have this set, but it's right. like a natural, we have this thing. I'm living in the most important moment in history and it's about to change. Yes. So what, 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 what makes me relevant and my now opinion, as it relates to this thing that, uh, you know, well, we've had a whole bunch of those and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, blue staters don't know this, but for like the, the most best-selling book for the longest time, like in the odds was a series called the left behind series. And it was this Christian fantasy that the good Christians got swept off into space because of the rapture happened. And then th- those who were left behind were left, those who were not the elect, for example, were left behind fighting over what was left. And this is basically the left behind series for uh, <laughs> techie nerds, basically. We're like, oh, what happens when the computers take over? We're just fighting over what's left. Like that's the, and yeah, this is my take on Why do you think that, uh, Dan, that was like interesting uh, observation, but maybe uh, it's a digression, but I'd be curious to kind of think through why is there a human need for end of times theory? I mean, I think Antonio probably has more thoughts on this. Like I was going to go to Holland and, and kind of give you some BS answer, but Antonio's like biting at the bit. So maybe we, we go to the guy who, who's like in multiple religions and thinks about this kind of stuff. Well, so a constant leitmotif in this, I'm just, I don't know if you saw our first episode, is, is Tim, I think we're all Holland-pilled at some point. Yep. So Tim Holland is an interesting popular historian. He has a BBC show. I've interviewed him. Great guy. He has a book called Dominion. And what's interesting about it is that the Christian gospels, right, are a powerful message and they've suffused a lot of Western life. And we're living in what he would call the residues of Christian thought, right? And it's funny because, of course, I think we joked before that, you know, Christianity is like Judaism for the masses. One of the things that Christianity took from Judaism and just ran with it is Messianism, the thought that there is some Messiah coming and we're living in the end times and there'll be this sort of, you know, apocalyptic conflagration and then the elect will survive and we'll be in the kingdom of God on earth, right? And if, if you look at, the manifestations that ideal, we have to create the kingdom of God on earth, right? Have assumed various forms, often in secular guise. 
So I, I think that's what it is. And if you look at, there's this uh, great book, which is in the bookshelf behind me somewhere by Norman Cohn, probably Jewish, called um, something about millenarianism. Basically, every Christian society, when they're stressed, always like reverts into some millenarian fervor about the end of the world. And the various, you know, great awakenings in American life, I think we're on the fourth or the fifth, and what, you know, Andrew Sullivan and Douthat called the great awakening, right? Because this awokeness business is like another expression of Protestant religiosity. Um, it's this business of like the end of the world is nigh, the kingdom of God is upon us, and what do we do? Right? That, that's what I think it is. And you, you, you just don't see that millionaires in non-Christian societies, like in Asia. And in, you, like, like, didn't the Mayans have some like end of days theory, 2012 or something like that? I'm not a Mayan scholar. Sure. Yeah, look, yeah. I, I would imagine it's it's if you're just to step back, apocalyptic stuff. I, I think there's a unifying component to it, right? Where it's like, oh, these petty squabbles. We have the big thing coming. Let's actually focus on that. And, and I mean, you can just use climate change. Just like look at the language in which climate change is, is couched. And, you know, everything turns into a climate change. Or if it's like going back to your point about the news, it's like, oh, there are more hurricanes now in Florida, so we're going to turn it into a climate change story. And then if you actually look at any of the science, it's like, oh, actually, this is inconclusive. And if anything, that it it hasn't even actually increased in the number of intensity and frequency. And, and, and so it's just like everything gets put through the lens of we have this thing that is a unifying, going to end the world, we must save it. And then everything is backfilled based on, on the narrative that you actually kind of want to work on. Yeah. So remember, in the 70s, global cooling used to be the threat, oh, yeah. by the way. Ozone layer, rainforest. I mean, look, anthropogenic climate change, probably. I mean, we, we, the, the temperatures are increasing. Like, that's a scientific fact. But as it relates to this kind of, uh, you know, it's like uh, the day after tomorrow is, is basically how everyone thinks of, of climate change. And, yeah. and you know, it's... it's it, it, one, one year, it's like the drought is a result of climate change. And then this year, it's the atmospheric river is a result of climate change. And then so it turns into this. If weather is different than last year, it's it's all climate change. And it turns out we've also had the climate change for a really long time. I think the Unsettled book, the former Obama advisor specifically for climate change, where he kind of says like, hey, I couldn't say this while I was working for the government. But the, the science, I mean, the, the name of the title, Unsettled, uh, it, it just... People people just want to believe what they want to believe because the narrative unifies and is greater than themselves. And I think it's also an industry now. Like uh, yeah, exactly. One of the first one of the first uh, Curtis Yarvin blog posts that I read was 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 about because his family was in the government, and he talks about um, how like you know a lot of these beliefs are about just grants like government grants right and it's like it's like a whole industry so it, this industry is self defending in a way like you know it, yeah. it it it's it's a survival mechanism to attack dissenters because there's actually like a lot of money a lot of things involved uh a lot of people's livelihood but before we move on from the ai thing eric can can i give you my view yeah because please my view, well, hold on. did you just find? I don't know who Yarvin is. You have to tell me who he is because I have no idea who that well, well, I've, never, I've never, re never read a word he has said. I have no idea who that individual is. But, 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 uh, let me yeah. say that louder into the mic. I don't know who this Yarvin person was that he mentioned. <laughs> but before, before he does that, I just want to ask Dan really quick Was it tough to bring another child into the world knowing he'd be contributing yeah. to climate change? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that. that's... 
when he got born or when he got conceived? <laughs> yeah, how many exactly. carbon copies to buy for a baby? Like, is it, is it, you know, how does it is, work? Is the guilt just how do you sleep at night? Yeah, hey, look, if we if we want to really get going and, and maybe biology will suddenly appear on the podcast, but we can start talking about Zihan and demographics, which I know Amjad, you're you're into talking about as well. But like I feel like I'm contributing to keeping the the population pyramid in a way that we can all have the luxury beliefs of worrying about these things that we really can't control over and is a lot of virtue signaling as a result of making sure that there are younger people to contribute into the the nice population pyramid shit. So that, that's how I, I view uh, bringing another child into the world. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Amjad, why don't you uh, go back to what your take is on the AI stuff? So, so I, I think fundamentally, like people ascribe agency to, to things like, um, you know, anyone who has kids knows that like one of the first things that kids do when they uh, grow cognitively is they try, they, they give, um, and names and they give um, personalities to their toys or even to like simple things like boxes or whatever. Um, humans have this tendency to ascribe agency uh, to things. Um, and you see this now with ChatGPT where a lot of people are ascribing agency to it. It has this political view, it has that thing. like. Ultimately, LLMs are completion engines. They were trained to complete your text. Yes, they're like building a lot of things on top of that, but it is basically taking a piece of text and completing it according to its training uh, data sets. Um, and, and so I, I think people just extrapolate from this idea uh, that we see some kind of glimpses of agency in these things to the fact that these things can formulate abstract goals and desires and go execute on them, which I don't think is entirely true, right? So um, for the AI is ultimately a tool for humans to do things in the world, right? It's another, like I, I think of LLMs are uh, as another computer. That's how I kind of build on top of LLMs. And we're doing a lot of things with LLMs at Replit. It's my mental model for it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a computer, right? And it's, um, it's a very powerful new type of computer, right? That's what the transformer language model is. It's um, like, you know, ML pre-transformer, it was sort of like a hardware computer. ML post-transformer is like a programmable computer because it has in-context learning and you can give it a prompt and make it do something interesting by programming it using the English language. I think what gives us agency is actually currently mysterious. It's easy to have the secular view uh, that we have these meat machines that we fully understand what they are, but we actually don't. Like, let's have the intellectual honesty to say that we do not understand what consciousness is and we don't understand the thing that really gives us agency. Um, you know, it might be some kind of soul. Like, why is that out of the question? Like, I feel like materialism is kind of, you know, it's jumping to conclusions, right? Because we haven't. We don't have a complete description of our of our universe. Like our physics has a fundamental flaw, which is our physics of tiny things is different than our physics of large things, and that we can't harmonize them. Like we still don't have a complete description of our physics of the world, and yet we say we we know what consciousness is and we know how to build it, um, and therefore, like I don't think we can fundamentally reach human level intelligence 
without understanding that. And we need a science of consciousness to be able to actually say that we can build it inside, inside the machine. That is not to say that AGI is not possible. So meaning I think AI can generalize. And I think LLM is a generalization of AI. Um, and I think that will continue to happen and the technology will get better and better. But I think it's just a tool as, as it were right now. I think we need some kind of science of agency of consciousness before we're able to say that we can build these things. But so in some sense, I mean, I think of a quote that I, I think it was Dijkstra, who everyone who studied computer science knows from his like shortest path algorithms or whatever in their algorithms course. But he said, you know, the question, the question about do computers think is like asking, do submarines swim? It doesn't really matter. The point is that the submarine goes 20 knots and a human does three knots, right? And so by whatever metric that actually matters, the thing is doing it faster than the human. It doesn't really matter whether they have consciousness, right? So from the point of view of like, are we all going to end up in some time machine-esque thing where we're just Eloys to the computer's Morlock? Um, I guess does it even matter? The thing that allows us to plan years ahead, the thing that would allow you to be, be a paperclip maximizer to recruit enormous amount of value of the world requires a lot of uh, planning, a lot of emotions. A lot. Just think about being an entrepreneur. You've done it multiple times. Uh, just like how much convincing you have to do. Um, and uh, you have to have a, some kind of theory of mind. You have to think what other people think. Um, and I'm not sure we can build that just yet. So no AI girlfriends. Like, you don't think it that's It will look a... like it. It might act like it. Um, it might fool some people. ChatGPT is already fooling some people, but that doesn't make it it, and that doesn't get it to the level of power that kills us all. Antonio, do you want to share your personal story that might give? I've got some. I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs> with an AI girlfriend, but I was, I was just fuck with you. Oh no, I know. Although I'm actually trolling. All these motherfuckers who are posting endless chat GPT three things. It's like that guy and her sitting there looking rapturously out the fucking subway window, like in love with their chat GPT three, or like that guy at Google who felt, you know, that the AI was talking to them. Like that's a classic guy who goes to the strip bar and thinks the strippers into him, right? It's like, dude, I don't think so. Uh, I think you know, it's, you know, one way. There's two ways to pass the Turing test. You either make computers really smarter or you make humans a lot fucking dumber, right? And so, I, and at some point you have the crossover. And so maybe we're doing this instead of this. That's my thing. So Andre, if I'm if not mistaken, I think you mentioned at some point you're, you're Palestinian. Is this, is this true? Yeah. So my uh, father is Palestinian. I've never been to Palestine. My mom is Amazir from North Africa. I've never been to North Africa. Huh. I am Jordanian. <laughs> so um, I grew up in Jordan. But you know, ethnically Palestinian. Out of curiosity, if you don't mind, my pride Christian or, or Muslim uh, Palestinian? Muslim. Muslim. I mean, the family is kind of like secular. Um, yeah. My my uncle was actually part of a the uh, secular Palestinian front, which is mostly was uh, Marxists. This is my uh, sort of disconnect from my people. Most Palestinians are sort of like incredibly left wing. I think that Soviet influence as well at the time was like huge yeah my 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 uncle is, is a martyr actually he died in a, in, a, in a mission but mostly secular family like um they drink and my uncles are like fully atheists and um a lot of them were educated in syria as well um and so um it wasn't like a lot of muslim influence growing up um which is now leading to sort of a bit of identity crisis is like what do we want to teach our kids um, so, so, uh, 
I think a lot of people are just dealing with that as well. I think America is fundamentally an identity crisis nation, so I kind of fit here. When was your coming of age? Did it come from libertarianism or like? I was always um, like free market oriented. Like my father was like a government employee. Um, I mean, they had a business as well, but he's like more government. Some of my uncles were also like, you know, business people, entrepreneurs, but there was a lot of sort of big government thinking and I always hated authority. So if you, if you think about sort of a, a, like a right leaning person as someone who is skeptical of authority and centralized authority specifically, I always had that. But on the other hand, um, sort of what people call socially liberal, I guess, in the US, I always sort of had that as well. It's not like in my own life, I like try to be more uh, traditional in our family life. Uh, have more family values. Like I got married really early when I was 24 yeah. and and we have kids and all of that. But at the same time, I just don't give a shit what other people do. So I guess that's another thing that's maybe a little different. I guess that's like more left libertarian. And then um, in economics, as I started learning economics, actually like my first uh, like real economics book was, was Freakonomics, surprisingly, um, which was awesome. It was like really cool because yeah. like I learned all these counterintuitive things and you sort of get introduced to the sort of contrarian branch of economics. Uh, they had all these kind of things uh, that were super interesting at the time. I think some of them were debunked, but like the idea that like abortion reduced crime, um, it is sort of like a contrarian slash a bit uh, like on PC sort of observation. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought the, you know, uh, you know later on I started reading like some more libertarian sort of economic blogs, you know, Brian Kaplan's of the world, that sort of thing. And I always found their insights like super interesting and they're unmarred by social pressures. And I think I always yeah. had that like, just you can arrive at truth. And I always wanted to arrive at truth uh, regardless of social pressure. Um, now, I think where, you know, I started more left and sort of uh, leaned more right is um, at least when I first came to the US, I didn't think much of the social justice rhetoric, kind of like you, Eric, I think. Um, yeah. And I, I sort of like, you're, you're sort of like swimming in it. I came to New York, right? And like the, uh, I think in 2012 and the, the wokeness was just sort of like ramping up. Um, yeah. And then uh, joined Facebook in like 2013. Um, and, and it's sort of all around you. And you, I don't think I've ever like, you know, been obnoxious, but I, I just sort of like never pushed back against that. And it's just sort of like kind of made sense to me that, um, that you know there are these social hierarchies and there are people that are oppressed and there are people that are oppressors and and you should like care about these people and th that's sort of like you know an extension of the american liberal values which they come from a good place and i yeah. thought they were like good ideas i think around 2015 in the sort of thick of the trump phenomena one thing that caused me to really question these things were when the uh, mainstream media were using Muslims and sort of identify as, as Muslim as a prop 
in their game against uh, Trump. Um, so if you remember the Gold Star family and all that crap, if you remember the the sort of the Muslim ban, they branded it as a Muslim ban. When you actually go read the source material, um, you find that the uh, uh, Trump was using an Obama sort of law to enforce certain like uh, migration from yeah. um, for some places that that were for some reason undesirable, and it was rebranded as as this anti-Muslim. Of course, he had some kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric, but nonetheless, the the media. I started kind of getting red pilled on the issue of the media, right? Which is yeah. um, like the the facts are might be true, but the news is fake, right? There was a recent. Scott Alexander um, uh, blog post uh, uh, titled uh, uh, The News Almost Never Lies. And in it, he talks about how anywhere from InfoWars to New York Times, there's actually very little lies. Like, go read InfoWars, you can find very little, maybe zero lies. Um, and he got huge pushback on that. Um, and it's like, no, like, especially from like liberal lean people is like, of course, there's a ton of misinformation on Infowars. And he did a follow up. And in that follow up, he actually went through Infowars and he picked some of the most hot button issues. And he couldn't find a single lie. Right. And the, um, the sort of conclusion from that is like the media almost never lies blatantly, even the fringe media. It's all uh, sort of Russell conjugation and um, selective facts reporting. And you can paint anything using any bias you have um, by using these two tools. And that's fascinating, right? And once you see that, I think that's the sort of red pill moment. And I would yeah. say that's like the, the thing that I was sort of missing. And so the Trump era sort of like opened my eyes on. Amjad, can you maybe uh, can you define maybe a Russell conjugation for our listeners? I, I know what it is, but I think it's 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 an interesting observation that I think is worth at least pausing on as a for definitional reasons, or somebody else yeah. maybe define. It. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think the other word for it is emotive conjugation, um, and the idea behind it is that for really any sentence you can say, there are ways to construct the sentence to either be uh, positive or negative. You're saying exactly the same thing, but you're implying different things. So I'll just like pull up an example from Wikipedia. So um, I am firm, you're obstinate, he is a big headed fool. Like you're literally like saying the same thing using different words and you're evoking different emotions. Um, I am righteously uh, indignant, you're annoyed, he is making a fuss over nothing. Right. I mean, you're literally saying that, and, and this is, this is like pretty obvious when the media does it. It's pretty unobvious. Like I dox, they report. Yes. Well, the other way around. <laughs> yeah. I, I report, they dox. That, yeah. That's been a, a one on Twitter. I, I protest, they riot. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if this is going to make the podcast, but I'm good. like, Amjad, what do you think is the biggest difference between Islam and Judaism? Like fundamental, uh -oh. Oh, man. <laughs> fundamental. Well, I'm, I'm not as sorry with the light topics. In, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly. as well versed in Judaism. What are the common things? I think that sort of uh, the super nerdiness of the rules um, is is the same. Like 
and especially when you contrast it to Christianity, Christianity has this like freewheeling spiritual aspect of it that is not present. And, and, and you see it in the art, you see it in the, and I find it very compelling. Like when I go to a church, like I actually feel something. It feels kind of like dark and, and, and weird um, in, in a good way. Like, again, I, I, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think that's sort of different than Judaism and Islam where it's like more serious business and like things needs to be followed and people will like, you know, will you will sort of yell at you uh, for like minor transgressions. Um, and y your question was major differences, right? Not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The commonality. So the differences, let's see, what are the differences? Honestly, like, um, like the Palestinians call the Jews our cousins, so that's the code word, Vladamna. Uh, yeah. um, so it's like, it's like there's so much. It's like the narcissism of small differences. There is yeah, like so like, much in common. It's kind of crazy that these people are fighting. Um, so I, I actually see more commonalities than than differences. To be Jewish, right? So getting back to the contrast between Christianity, say, and Judaism, or that Amjad mentioned, right? You know, I think Judaism and possibly Islam is they're more orthopraxic, orthopraxic religions, right? A Jew is as a Jew does to a certain degree. So, for example, the questions we get asked by the rabbis in the conversion court because there's like a whole like final exam for the conversion thing. You don't even get asked about God or faith. You get asked about what you do, how you live a Jewish life. Um, and has nothing to do with what you actually think in the sense of like belief or doctrine. That's why like in English, people often use faith as a synonym for religion, but it's a little inaccurate. I think in the case of Judaism, it's not really about faith, actually, it's about practice and uh, maybe patterns of thought at most. Um, but among those patterns of thought are sitting there and studying the esoteric texts and, uh, and, and, and arguing about them. So when you, if you were to go to a yeshiva, and I have not, to be clear, but you typically have a study partner with you who like you sit there and argue with, <laughs> and then that's considered studying. So you got these piles of books and you just sit there and argue with the guy next to you. And that, that is, that is living Jewishly in some sense. So yeah, something has to come out of that, which I think is what Amjad is getting. Yeah. And, and, and Amjad, I would, the characterization of Christianity is a little bit more free uh, association, or I think it's maybe more modern, but if you kind of church history wise, like early, early Christianity, obviously you have tons of forks, right? It's like, cryptocurrencies and stuff like that where it's like each 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 people get really specific on one thing and then they split and uh so the, all the different early forks of, of the church um is, is specifically arguing over like one or two words or you know what what th this thing or that thing means and then obviously you get the concentration of power in, in the catholic church which becomes a political entity which i think then changes a little bit of how the religion works but obviously to to that point like it's a, a very top-down organization, even today. And then you you kind of have, I think, in American Christian culture, which I think is is kind of like water we all swim in, whether we uh, are Christian or not. It's just like that that is what American values are, very rooted in that, is, is very rooted in Protestantism, which I think actually is a more decentralized uh, version of Christianity, right? Like, I think Presbyterianism literally means like the, whatever the Presbyterian, whatever that is, is actually local local congregation specifically, there is no concept of a Pope. Right. And, and so I think that mishmash is, is a little, it's, it's hard to lump Christianity altogether, right? It's like a, a, a Greek Orthodox Christian versus, I don't know, someone who's a Unitarian is, it's like hard to say that it's the same religion. Yeah. You have Jesus and God, but, 
but they very two different practices and how things are implemented. But you know, if, yeah, just example, kind of say there's one church, the one Holy Roman Apostolic Catholic Church, and there's no other, and the rest are just bizarre, real, you know, yeah, they're just re weird little offshoots. The Protestants are like Linux. There's like 800 versions of it. You can't get it to work with shit. And Catholicism is like Mac OS 10, right? All right. I'm saying is if you've been in the Sistine Chapel, I, I don't know how many other religions that's, that's have something like that. That's pretty worthy of But like, Dan, like, um, the, the, even like, just like core of Christianity, like, for example, there are fundamental, um, I, I don't know how, how to call them. Like, for example, like uh, Judaism and Islam are pretty clear monotheism, right? Like that's the thing, right? Christianity monotheism-ish, right? It's like there are kind of two two gods, maybe three. Um, and it's like... Well, not, uh, now you're getting into the, the primary reasons why a lot of these things have split, right? Is is yeah. like what, you know, the Son and the Father, one thing, or is it the, the Holy Trinity, right? And so I, I think... For all intents and purposes, Christianity is a monotheistic religion, right? There is one God. The instantiation of that God, that, that's where I'm starting outside my lane. But like that, so it's a that has literally caused all of these these splits early on. And I want to say the Council of Nicaea, which is like the, the, the big one, is, is actually specifically, and maybe Antonio, you know this, but like is specifically around like I think some dualism or some version of like one of the three or two two of the three type thing. I just think it's incredible. People used to kill each other. We used to have wars over the nature of the Trinity. Right? That, that, was, that was the thing you used to go to war over and would massacre people over. But yeah. Speaking of religious wars um, and, and Jordan, uh, although I guess he's Syrian, uh, there's a, an excellent book I read uh, while I was traveling. Actually, the first place when I took my sabbatical after Coinbase, I actually went to Jordan, uh, yeah. which was really cool. It was the first time I'd been in an Arab country and, and just kind of my first exposure to the Middle East. Then I went to Egypt and then Israel. Um, but I read this book, uh, I think that's the right order to do that, by the way, you can't do it in the opposite order. <laughs> yeah. Well, is that you couldn't, I couldn't fly from Egypt to Israel. I had to go back to Jordan and then go to Israel. But, um, the, the book that I, I was really eye opening for me, um, being a history nerd is, is the crusades through Arab eyes, um, by Amin Malouf. And it's actually originally written in French. I think he's, he's Syrian, but, um, is a complete, change of, of perspective on, on something that I'd been taught in school of, of kind of like, okay, crusades or this, this Western oriented thing. And then you go to the Holy land versus written through the primary sources of the time from the people who were there is we were just hanging out. We were living our lives. And then all of a sudden these marauding French people show up and <laughs> stay for a hundred years and do all this terrible stuff. And then eventually we got this, this Saladin guy who, who was able to then like kind of clear them out. And then they yeah. finally sent like some reasonable guy, uh, whatever, Richard, Richard the Lionheart, or I forget which one, but they come all together and, and then kind of agree to the peace. And so I, I, I yeah. just, that, that was such a fascinating book because you would just never get assigned that in an American school. And to read it uh, from that perspective, I, I think it was like a pretty eye-opening version of uh, the, yeah, at exactly least the religiosity happened. of all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the crusades were wild. Like, um, you know, the, the story when they've taken Jerusalem, they just sort of went in and they're like, oh, like, we're, we're not going to kill anyone. Like, you know, they try to make a deal and everything. But the moment they were in, they just started murdering everyone. They just like went all in Christians, Muslims, Jews, 
uh, especially Jews, um, the stories were like blood. I don't know if it's like an exaggeration. There was so much blood flowing. It was up to the knees. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I'm and, pretty sure that's the first crusade. And and that was the geez, only time yeah, they right. ended up with Jerusalem. Whereas when I think Saladin came and when I say the third crusade, he actually took it back and then kept it and was a lot more magnanimous with the population. Yeah. I want to get back to something we were talking about that kind of combines threads a little bit. There's a sort of tension within AI, but even just broadly technology in general, like, or is it tools for humans or does it replace us? Um, and, and we were also talking about, you know, Dan, we were mentioning how there's a faction of people who actually think having kids is potentially bad for the world. And of course, um, that's not true. But th- there seems to be this broader kind of transhumanism versus Ludditism, Ludditism kind of axis. But what I, what I find interesting is that that tension exists both on the left and on the right. Like it's not a perfect, it's not like one side is pro-tech and the other is not within both sides on the, you know, the right, you have this return movement. Um, and then you have, you know, a, a pro-tech you know, sort of the Peter Thiel faction. And on the left, you also have a pro-tech faction for more like egalitarian or, or woke ends. And of course you have this, you know, a- anti-tech faction. And I, I think that that debate as, as AI, as gene editing, as all this technology starts to get way better, is going to start to like rage on and, and people who were previously disagreeing on th- or agreeing on things are now going to start to be disagreeing. Trying to figure out uh, whether the Unabomber was uh, left wing not or right wing not. It's actually pretty difficult because <laughs> to, to, uh, I think it's like pretty um, important to read the Unabomber manifesto. And it's not just because like uh, I think it's an, sort of an interesting read and I'm also definitely not uh, promoting any of the violence uh, uh, in, in that thing. But it is actually like I think the blueprint for Ludditism um, in the 21st century. And actually, a lot of people on the right really um, resonate uh, with with the Unibomber. You see a lot of uh, Twitter yeah. shit posters kind of talking about it. Um, and that's fine. A lot of it is like for fun. But uh, th- there's something about it that sort of resonates. But um, there's there's an aspect of it that is is sort of that is sort of right wing, like obviously, like he talks he talks about the the problem of leftism before the word woke. He actually really identifies some of the woke issues. Like the first few pages is basically just talking about uh, wokes, um, and then he talks about this idea of technology robbing us of of meaning, uh, and meaning he defines as as this concept called the power process. The power process is the idea of like growing up, learning how to hunt and build things and doing those things, uh, you know, getting a wife, having some kids, raising those kids and becoming the, you know, the elder and like passing the knowledge on and then dying. And that was the thing. That's why people lived and they were happy. And then uh, he's not against local technology. He's against global technology and supply chains. Technology that makes you dependent, makes you lose that power process. And the idea is that people don't need to work hard or even work uh, for sustenance. You can just like really cruise through life, especially in Western welfare uh, countries. And, um, you know, and then there's an environmentalism aspect of what he says. That's sort of like clearly left wing. Um, and sort of anti-capitalist 
uh, view that's clearly left-wing, anti, um, sort of, uh, uh, sort of like you know, technology, uh, t technological capitalism that's clearly left, left-wing. So, I, I, I think sort of trying to decipher that, and and maybe the answer is like, uh, this is actually a unifying thing uh, across both left and right. Ladaitism and maybe the Unabomber was the was the was the sort of Venn diagram intersection. Well, Antonio, didn't you live off the grid? Didn't you you live that power yeah. process for a little while? How do you? How I do lived you... like the Unabomber. I did live like Ted K. It's funny. I, I got reminded by Google Photos. You know how Google Photos hits you with like photos of the past. And uh, I was I I I was that guy who like put up a yurt and lived in the woods on an island off of Northwest Seattle shortly after Chaos Monkeys came out because I was so fed up with the media game. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, obviously, like, like I've just said, like, Luddism is a failing strategy. Like, it just never works. No, no one actually embarks on the Balerian Jihad, to use a Dune reference, whereby you, like, like, if you try to find the examples of technologies that humanity, like, very willfully said, oh, we're just not going to do this. Like, it would be useful, but we're just not going to do it. There's very few examples you can cite of, of such a thing. It just kind of Fission. Fission. We don't build nuclear power plants anymore. <laughs> well, right. It, it, Antonio, how did you learn to stop worrying and love capitalism? I love you, capitalism. You, I, no, I don't love capitalism, actually. I don't love <laughs> capitalism. But, um, but you've evolved a little bit, no? I, I, I'm still residually European and Catholic enough to, be, to look at it with suspicion. I'm not quite Protestant enough to consider I, I achieve transcendent value by achieving shareholder value. Um, I probably shouldn't say that because I actually owe my investors an update because I haven't given one in a while, but um, they've been nagging me for one. I, I don't know. I think, you look, I, you know, there's a truism in startups, like it's never a technical problem. It's always a human problem. But then like bad startup entrepreneurs go after the technical problem because that's the easy one to solve. And they, they don't actually go after the, the, the human problem, which is poor product vision, bad management, whatever it is. I think that's the problem that we have right here. I've, and I've always thought this, by the way, that like, yes, social media is definitely a destabilizing force. Like there's no question, but there's, there's no rolling it back. And I think humanity needs to catch up and create new institutions and structures that live within that. I mean, it's, I hate to cite the example, but look at Israel, a country that, you know, does have a lot of religion to it, has a high birth rate, has a thriving tech sector. You can have all three, right? Like it, 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 they don't need to live at the, at, at the exclusion of each other necessarily. Starting with but, the hard technical problem rather than the human problem. Antonio, if, um, if Amjad, if one, you know, if, if a red pilling moment for Amjad was the, the sort of use of the Muslim ban language during the Trump stuff, what was like yeah. a big um, moment for you that was, you know, red pilling or slightly altering in terms of where you stand on certain things. I mean, you were like a journalist. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Going crazy, reeling at dumb journalists about tech. I was like, God, this is a, this is a loser's game. And two, it's driving me literally crazy. It's time to go back to building. And that's when I left the fucking yurt in the woods and stopped being Mr. Professional journalist guy. Um, Cause he's also you the defected. child of Cuban immigrants. Like, I don't think uh, red pilling is like something that happens later. It's <laughs> kind of like you're born right. into that. Right, it was epigenetic. We we got we got red pilled at the revolution in 1961. Exactly. You know, the people who stay, uh, you know, exactly. <laughs> um, well, getting back to the religion thing, I think Amjad mentioned there somewhere religion and children and stuff, or maybe it was in the in the pre roll. But it's like, uh, and and I I wrote this essay that that went viral within the the tiny Jewish Twitter community called Why Judaism, right? And one of the things, once you have children, you the questions you ask yourself that used to be sort of philosophical parlor games, maybe in a college dorm room around. What values do you have? What's worth preserving, et cetera, suddenly become very real when you have a child because that child asks you questions and they're almost like a, a bottle you're casting into the ocean. You have to like, what do you, what do you stuff in the bottle? Or almost like the, the NASA scientists have to figure out what to put on the Voyager probe. What artifacts of human culture would you put on the probe that you're firing out of the, the solar system to like a private individual who's not a NASA scientist, 
the equivalent of that is your child, right? You're staring into the face of immortality, right? When you're looking at your child. And what do you pass on to that child? And suddenly the questions become very serious and very real in a way they weren't before. Um, and so that it, that would be a red pilling moment, I guess. It's actually funny you bring that up because we, we had a discussion, I think it was over Christmas, it was with some family and, uh, you know, people were talking about how, oh, you don't need to be religious to be a good person. And uh, kind of my push was like, okay, so where did you come up with the set of moral values and right. uh, kind of like what mean, what it means to be a good person? you know, define that. And so we kind of went through that and I said, well, you know, where, where, where did those come from? Was that just kind of a Lindy thing? It like always existed in humanity and kind of, we, we kept pushing, 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 and, and we didn't get really that far, but you kind of take, which we talked about, I think in the last episode is like the ancient city where it's like, there are no, there are pre-Christian belief systems uh, that, you know, strong versus weak. Like that, that's another, another version of one. And um, the other interesting point that came out of this conversation, which I've asked a bunch of other people and someone has yet to come up with an answer, what is an activity that families in a community do on a regular basis called once a week where they all get together and do something outside of going to some type of religious service, right? Which if you, if you argue that, that that's been happening for hundreds, if not thousands of years, what, what alternative? And so that, that's my push to the secular people who can believe like, I can be secular and good. Um, I, I don't think that there's any structure that can kind of replace that. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to go be religious, but I, I think people should go eyes wide open in that you're, you're operating in an operating manual of like how people should be raised from a, a you know, set of values or whatever with, without all of the Lindy uh, operating system that all these other generations of people have been operating so uh, this is an interesting question. Sometime, uh, sometimes I sort of liken the modern human experience to starting a video game from the middle. Um, say you're in a role-playing game. You don't know what the controls are. Uh, you don't know what the story is. You just took the controls from someone and you're just trying to like piece things together, trying to figure out what your mission is, trying to figure out how to go about gaining skills or doing things. Um, and it feels like being a modern human, you're sort of without any religious framework, like you're trying to figure out what to eat. Like, you know, diet is, is another like thing that like, you know, modern secular people are just all the time questioning. Um, and I'm one of them. I've tried every diet on the planet haven't felt good in anything. I, I suspect that there's some diet that my ancestors kind of had that lost, uh, you know, in, in the generations and I wasn't passed on. Um, I've sort of found something that sort of works for me now, which is uh, basically mostly meat and some, some amount of uh, leafy vegetables and almost zero carbs. Um, I don't know why that thing that makes me feel the past and perform the best, but I had to tinker with every diet out there in order to figure that out. Um, and, um, and people end up fighting, creating factions, uh, biology and the network state talks about the keto state. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, the, um, and, and so, you know, now as we have children like that, it's like, do I want to pass the controller also like without giving him a manual or give him an intro to my, to my kid? And I'd rather give him some kind of manual and intro and say so the question of religion or some kind of framework now becomes very salient. And, and like you said, 
Antonio, it's uh, you're staring in the face of immortality. I really like that um, concept. And and so, uh, you know, the, the other thing about kids is that they love structure. Like one thing that I sort of, you know, rebelled against is any kind of structure. Um, and I loved when I moved out of home and uh, ate whenever I want, slept whenever I want, did whatever I wanted. And I'm finding that that kind of sort of chaotic uh, living just doesn't work for kids. Like they need a lot of structure, a lot of time. We eat at this time. They need rules. They need all these things. Uh, and so we're just like reinventing everything from from scratch. And that doesn't seem to be like great. Yeah. I mean, like, are you going to do better than centuries of, you know, Muslim or Jewish <laughs> practitioners or rabbis? Um and, and again, like the keto state, like it's clear. I mean, I, I, I've been on the keto diet to be clear. So I, I can see the advantage of cutting a lot of carbs, but, um, a lot of secular, it's just interesting that a lot of secular practices are basically obviously kind of LARPing at other practices, right? The, 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 the restricted diets, fasting, digital Shabbats. I mean, it's like, huh? So, so you just, you rediscovered Shabbat, huh? Um, yeah. Um, and the other thing is the, the other religion thing is that, and again, this is, I think, a lot of people who debate religion, particularly those who, who weren't relig religiously, they, again, they, they, they treat it like a philosophical parlor question about like, oh, the, the, the big man in the sky with the beard. It's like, they don't realize religion as it's lived is often, is often just a community with shared values and shared narratives. That's all it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, like, how's your burning man camp any different, yo, <laughs> except the stories have been around a lot, you know, less time and, you know, it's sort of cobbled together, but that that's actually what it is in, in practice. Right. It's not about the big man in the sky at all. Um, and, in a society in which you know you look out and the few functioning organizations are basically corporations, right? And you're raising children in this. Not that there's anything wrong with corporations. I'm not going to sign up to be the group calling here, but there's a little bit something more to life than just uh, maximizing shareholder value. And it's hard to find that for children these days. Uh, what's the dance point? What is the collective phenomenon you, you go out and do other than have a restaurant meal? There's not much, right? Yeah. And, and also do it as a family, right? Like, right. you know, Burning Man is is basically, it's like Holy Week, just not in April. It, it's, and in it's a hipster hodge, man. That's what it is. It, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like um, the dismissal of religion is the classic midwit meme where That's like, cool. oh, I'm so sophisticated. Uh, you know, dumb people are religious because they believe that the big man in the sky and then the Jedi guy on the other side is like, oh, religion's actually good. Like this is, there are some really powerful things about the lived practice of something that is greater than yourself, that you're part of a community uh, that hopefully represents a set of values that you actually want to be living yourself as well as your, your children. And, and, and this is coming from someone I, I'm not going to church every week. Right. Like, um, so I, I think the, w w with kids, I've actually reconsidered it because I'm realizing that growing up, going to church every week, as much as I didn't like it, that there is something powerful and you feel very connected to the rest of humanity. It, Antonio, when you're kind of bringing up the point about like, how are you going to do better than, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of, of tradition? It's like Richard Dawkins in the book. Um, what is it? The selfish gene. He, he comes up with the term me, right. And, and it's the idea of like cultural evolution alongside, uh, you know, genetic evolution. And, and the idea that, Everyone is just going to start from scratch and it's like, okay, we're going to invent our new operating system from a cultural standpoint, our mimetic operating system, because we're so enlightened now as modern people seems crazy, right? Like, whereas if you, I think you take the, the Lindy Taleb version of things or Chesterton, 
Chesterton's fence, whatever whatever framework you want to say on that is like, oh, maybe maybe these things were actually useful from a society standpoint for a reason. Tradition is a solution to problems that whose nature we've forgotten about, right? And to cite the example of Chesterton's fence, which all the trads read Chesterton now, he's a Catholic author. I believe he was a convert, if I'm not mistaken. And the, the whole notion of the fence is you're in a field, you approach this old fence that's been around for a while, and you think, you look around, like, why does this fence have to be here? And you immediately set about destroying it. And what you realize is that, in fact, there is some tribe of barbarians or, or a pack of wild horses that that fence was keeping back. And now suddenly you've got a horse problem. And if you just mm -hmm. left the damn wall there, you wouldn't be facing the problem, but you didn't quite understand what the fence was there to begin with. And uh, those who would destroy the Chesterton fences of society often don't pause to ask exactly what, what, what is that fence actually holding back? That's like going into a new code base and uh, deleting a piece yeah. of code and then, <laughs> and then producing <laughs> yeah. an insane bug. And then you get the page of the alarm and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we know that the fence was oppression, Antonio, and, and we need to take down the fence. So therefore, yeah, yeah, we won't have oppression <laughs> and we will all have a quality of outcome. That That's the real answer. I want to segue into uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, Amjad, you, you've thought a bit about conspiracies, um, you know, modern day conspiracies, but also just the role of conspiracies in history and how people have, have perceived them and why it's kind of high status to, 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 to not deny them. Um, what want you un unpack some of your thoughts there? Like today, like just the mere mention of a conspiracy theory evokes an Alex Jones type, a QAnon type, basically the type that uh, American elite think are low class and um, as Hillary Clinton famously said, deplorables. That's sort of the where the conspiracy theories lie. Um, in reality, like history is a series of conspiracies. Like if you read history carefully um, and you read about any group that has achieved massive success in any domain, it was actually a bunch of conspiracies. Uh, plans made in secret and kept secret for a long time and executed on for a long time. That's the definition of a conspiracy. Um, and then, you know, it's no secret that the you know, uh, that actually the CIA introduced, popularized the concept of uh, conspiracy theory as a psyop to um, delegitimize anyone who questions um, the inner workings of the intelligence community. And as things keep coming up, it's sort of, um, it, it's sort of clear that, you know, the U.S. has done a lot of conspiracies uh, in the past. And, um uh, you know, so if we take for granted the fact, I mean, let me mention just one or a couple examples of massive conspiracies just to kind of to set the stage, like, uh, you know, where I'm from, uh, you know, Jordan, Palestine, Syria, um, the um, towards the uh, uh, late stages of the 19th century under the Ottoman rule. Um, the British funded and supported some Arab uh, groups to revolt against the Ottoman rule. They ended up succeeding, um, but turns out the Europeans had a different plan. They thought the Arabs were fighting for sovereignty. Under the Sykes-Picot uh, agreements, they divided the region uh, into colonial uh, Europe, right? And so and that, that went on for, for many decades. Um, that's a conspiracy that was executed flawlessly 
Um, and you just got to respect it, right? And, and people who plan for a long time and execute on their plans on many years and decades and succeed is something very interesting. And that's a, something that's like, um, uh, that's very human. The, the ability to plan for the future and execute many steps and be able to predict what's going to happen is actually a fascinating thing. Um, and I think every startup, and I think Peter Thiel makes that point, is that every startup in some way a conspiracy. When I described kind of what Replit was, I, I described multiple steps that we had to execute and it all played out. It's all working, right? Um, and yeah, that's amazing, right? That you can do that. Um, and so the fact that you can observe that is politically incorrect right now, right? The fact that you can observe that there are some people smart and capable enough to be able to execute a plan um, is, is, is somehow low IQ or low class, right? Um, you know, the, the, so to steel man, the idea that there's no more uh, conspiracies, one could say that there are no more capable people. There's actually decadence in society, um, and therefore the capable people of the 20th century have disappeared. Now uh, there are actually no conspiracies. Everything's out in the open, and 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 we can't. And this is the the usual retort to any sort of conspiracy thinking: is that um, oh, that would take too many people, or there aren't enough capable people being able to do that. Uh, but is it actually true? Do we not have capable and smart people? I mean, there's definitely some some decadence, and maybe the 20th century was actually more more capable in some some extent. But I find it surprising that there are no capable people able to execute on on big plans and secret. I think the problem might be that you're using conspiracy in a slightly overloaded term. I mean, Ryan Holiday has this book called Conspiracy, and he makes a point that I think you're making, right? Which is it, it. And for those who haven't read it, it's Ryan Holiday's book about speaking of Teal, the Peter Teal thing, in which he totally wrecks Gawker, right? And and there, just to summarize a little bit. What he did was he funded a lawsuit from Hulk Hogan, who supposedly got slandered or libeled against Gawker, and that eventually killed Gawker, and it was all funded by Teal. And it wasn't clear until a certain point in the in the drama that it was actually Teal doing it. And, and the point Ryan Holiday makes is, is what you're making, Amjad, which is like, how often do you see like a small set of focused people coming up with an action plan and then just implementing it in the world? It's relatively rare to see, right? And it seems like it is a competence issue, like you're saying. There's something about that. But I would say, I don't know, there's a subtle difference there between like the Alex Jones conspiracy of like unseen forces who typically fall into certain tropes around certain minorities or whatever, right, are doing certain things versus, you know, yeah, well, your startup example, right? Every startup is, in fact, a conspiracy. Like, we believe this is the future state of the world. Here's where we are today. We will do these set of steps and we will get there. And if we succeed, big things will happen, right? And that still happens. But I, I don't know. In my mind, I kind of distinguish the Alan, Alex Jones case from like the startup case a little bit. I, I agree with that. But I think the, the psyop here is that they link them together. And so if you were to speculate about, uh, for example, if you were to speculate about government influence on social media, you're a conspiracy theorist, right? Two or three years ago. Is that right? Do we agree on that? Like they, they yeah. said that. Yeah, I think it's pretty Yeah, they said you're a conspiracy theorist if you thought that Twitter was infiltrated by the government or had some large government um, influence. Well, it turns out, actually, it was infiltrated. Uh, the Indian government had people working at Twitter, right? That came out even before the Twitter files. That was the whistleblower. And, I think. and the Saudis. And the Saudis, <laughs> and the FBI. Right? 
and now the FBI. And now we know that F- the, their like general counsel is is like an FBI guy. And so that was used to discredit people who were actually saying something that was true about the war. Isn't there some quality that's good about naivete, right? Like when I think about like my boomer parents or like what the state of the world was in the before times, right? There was a certain fundamental faith in things working. Like you see it now, like Americans come off as naive to non-Americans sometimes, right? Because you're like, oh, how could you possibly believe this startup founder's story? But like things like hope and optimism are collective delusions, but they're self-reinforcing. And that if we all believe the future is going to be better, we kind of act in a way such that we make it that way. And, and if you go to other countries like Latin America, say, or other parts where, in fact, people have been betrayed by their institutions, there's this general cynicism about things, right? Everyone always assumes that any action is due to some conspiracy behind the scenes or some act of corruption. And I, that, that sort of thinking is very corrosive, I think. It's hard to create anything good in that environment in which everything is seen as, as a but, conspiracy. But arguably true because the institutions are weak and so it's a smaller group yeah. of people. And, and I think it's just the spectrum of, of how sinister or out there the conspiracy is. But I, but I think that the, the thing with conspiracy theories, like if you say conspiracy theory to someone just out of the blue, I think they think like Roswell, JFK, which actually turns out the, I don't know, the, the whole thing that came out a couple of weeks ago where they're declassifying some of the information and it turns out the CIA actually probably knew Lee Harvey Oswald a little bit more, or maybe that was already known, but more information is coming out. And who reported um, on it? But it put Tucker, to the side. Right? Like the mainstream media did not. Yeah, it on made it. it on Tucker. And I, again, yeah. I, I haven't had any time to go verify, but all the yeah. more reason is it didn't even register a blip because obviously if it's, yes. it's coming from the right, it's not going to make anything on the mainstream. But going back to the the concept, I, I think it a gets really bad branding, right? It's like, oh, you're you believe in Area Fifty One and aliens, okay, conspiracy, right? Um, but but if you think about the, the the two things, one, I think it, the high status thing, Eric, you mentioned, it's because high status people trust in process, right? This is like classic Burnham PMC, like the the Borg, the cathedral, the you know we the the process is the thing that we trust and in a in a good process there's it's impossible to have a conspiracy because that wouldn't like work within the the kind of set of rules but but here's a good example of something that falls under the kind of crazy conspiracy camp and was a result of just kind of like unaccountable process is covid happens we we have in april of 2020 someone puts up an anonymous uh github website like just and it was called Project Epstein, which then, then they, they renamed later because uh, people are giving them grief around the Epstein, which obviously itself is its own conspiracy theory, saying that here's all this evidence of funding for gain-of-function research in Wuhan at the virology lab. And like this was all published information. And people were like the media just went crazy. I remember Keith Raboy was like tweeting it and like people were just like, this is all right-wing disinformation absolutely not like don't be racist or what, whatever the set of things that people were criticizing this on. Then it comes before Congress when if you lie, you actually go to jail and all the people start saying, Oh yeah, we were doing gain and function research. That was, that was part of the process. Like we, we, it was approved, like here, here's the approval. And then now it's just, I think that the intelligence community has basically come out and, and, and the report is, yeah, there, there was inappropriate stuff happening in the Wuhan virology lab. And everyone of course knew about that. <laughs> and it's the same kind of lockstep turn that happened with Twitter, where you were a conspiracy theorist for believing all the stuff was potentially happening, shadow banning all this. And then as soon as it flipped out, it was like, well, they were doing content moderation. Like that that's what they were supposed to be doing. But it's like complete gaslighting because people are changing what they were just saying six months ago 
that 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 was preposterous in a conspiracy theory versus it flips into hey well actually that it, it's that's semantic definition here and then it's always a is a technicality rather than the acknowledgement that they were wrong before i mean hunter biden laptop like you can you just go over like the steel <laughs> dossier I mean, it just like the mainstream media on this stuff is is crazy. And then when it turns out, it, it, it like the conspiracy theory, like turns out to have some semblance of truth. It just gets dismissed as being like, well, it's kind of a nothing burger anyways, or it doesn't matter. Or we're on to the new, the the kind of like new thing rather than the the previous thing. And so I, I think it's like, do you want to live your life thinking everything is is false? Probably not. But at the same time, if you categorically dismiss things because it's someone of a different political bent has the opinion, then you're just like not truth seeking. Like you're just, you're, you're, you're getting beamed like that NPC meme, like whatever the New York times <laughs> thinks you think versus, Hey, something's happening. I'm going to try to get as many inputs from as many different sources as possible and then make my own decision. One of the best tools uh, to kind of show this, this hypocrisy and gaslighting is the Twitter search up to a, uh, moment at a time. Someone did a Twitter search where um, where it was like, uh, I think the, the term was like, Twitter is a private company, right? Uh, in quotation, I mean, this not really has a lot of bearing on the conspiracy stuff, but it's very interesting because it's, it's gaslighting, right? So liberals pre Elon Musk acquisition, anything Twitter does, it's like, it's a, it's a private company that has nothing to do with the first amendment. The build first, your own Twitter. This, I actually took yeah, that. Yeah, build seriously. your own Twitter. And there's this fucking stupid XKCD, uh, um, uh, comic strip that they post, which is about the first amendment is like, Oh, like, it's like, you can't be obnoxious and think the first amendment protects you. And it's like, and then, uh, I then that's sort of all disappeared. Right. When, uh, first of all, uh, you know, someone they don't like to took over Twitter. And second of all, it turns out that actually it was a first amendment issue. Like the government was actually like fucking Adam Schiff was sending a list of thousands of people to ban. <laughs> it's like, ban these, <laughs> ban these suckers for me. You know, it's like, it's, it's wild and it's, it is gaslighting and it's just infuriating, right? Because I like the truth and it's important to, dwell on something that happened right and instead of like moving on to the next thing it's like ah well of course we always knew about that right and i'm not saying like the twitter files i'm not saying they're yet they they it's not like a huge revelation maybe there's more uh i think elon is promising the fauci stuff to be pretty big but um it is something right and it is something to to talk about and every one of those instances where um when the conspiracy turns out to be true it's like it's always been true, and then move on, right? Speaking of truth, there's a there's a very important topic I, I want to know um, if we've got clarity on. Um, are the frogs gay? <laughs> I'm actually come up with these topics, Eric. <laughs> this won't make it. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so actually, actually, there is a uh, <laughs> you know there is a, a, a you know, uh, it's kind of very stupid way to, to formulate it, but there was a paper that Alex Jones was citing about uh, chemicals in the water that were uh, that were um, that were making frogs become the opposite gender. There's like a scientific term for it, um, and and so it's like, you know, that's the thing that um, that's the thing that um, 
that uh, uh, Scott Alexander uh, talked about in the recent blog post is that typically it's said in the most stupid way, um, but especially in prints, like Infowars, like actually always has some kind of like facts behind it. You remember the, the premise of Jurassic Park, the reason why it got out of control is because they spliced in frog DNA into the dinosaur DNA. And all the, all the dinosaurs, I think, were originally one sex, and that's why they couldn't reproduce. So when they discovered dinosaur eggs, it's like, what the fuck is going on? And it turns out that the frog DNA is the one that forced the dinosaur to actually become. And so not only are the frogs gay, they're actually trans. And in fact, the male frogs are laying eggs. And so we just have to accept that fact and, uh, you know, move on with our new conception of sex and gender. I don't think that that made the Spielberg cut of the movie. I think that might have just been in the Michael Crichton uh, book. That's why you always have to read the book, man. If the, if the, the movie's good enough you have to go read the book to sort of get really into the details of it. Um, yeah. My, Michael Crichton forever like is is one of my favorites for what is it um gel man amnesia or gel man i always get his name wrong he's a famous physicist yeah, but yeah i mean that that's like one of the most important and going back to the to the media like now i just anytime i read something it doesn't have to just be from the media it's just like okay uh peter zahan's a good example i, I was i was talking about this with someone today been a big proponent of him and then i'm kind of listening to him talk about crypto or tesla or like some of these more recent things or he, he, you know, he had this recent video where he's like, this is the last iPhone. And, and now I'm like, okay, well, I kind of like walking through first principles. This, this is not kind of clicking. And so it's now making me question all the other stuff that he said, because I'm kind of like lapping up his demographics and his energy stuff. And, and so I, I think it's even with like people you agree with, like you should actually have that deep level of skepticism uh, around like, okay, it, it, is this an area? And, and then try to actually get to that like primary sources as soon as possible. Right, because then you can actually make the, the adjustment yourself, you're, you know, the judgment yourself. I don't know, man. Look, the news has always been fake. And it, like, why are we pursuing truth so much? Just to think, just to take the counter argument, why does it matter, right? Because if you go and you read, a span, uh, say, a French and an English version of a Napoleon biography, you get two very different versions of the man. And both are interesting in their own way. They're not necessarily wrong, right? They're capturing different aspects of that individual. But we, they were self-consistent within the narratives that produced that work, right? So the... I think a lot, again, I've always, I've harped on this constantly, right? But the thought that we've like decoupled how information and, and matter moves around, the fact that we've decoupled the narratives from the linguistic borders and the political borders, mean that we're all in this narrative confusion and that we don't get to a level of narr narrative co coherence and consistency, which is what we really want and, we, and which is what really matters. Like, does your model, like there is no truth. No one's going to actually write a biography of Napoleon that is true in any capital T way. There is no truth outside of physics labs and maybe not even there. And so the question is just like, what sort of narrative do we accept and what model is useful for the world? And that, to I me, that's like the best. Truth. I think there's a truth and, and you know, really? you're crypto guys, right? And like, I think Bitcoin is a very interesting invention in that it actually records truth. Like ultimately what Bitcoin is, it's a technology for recording truth. And they, you know, for the first time, and I think that's what, Bitcoin is fascinating to me. Um, and, and there are a lot of interesting algorithmic things that are happening now around uh, the around finding better information instead of saying, you know, finding truth. But um, like, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain and the whole Bitcoin sort of system is about agreeing on what's true and then recording it forever. Yeah, but those truth claims are very highly bounded, right? Like there's this whole thing in blockchain called the, the, the Oracle problem, which is how do you couple like real reality, like like this desk is real reality and is exists at, you know, Hampshire Street in the mission 
to the blockchain reality, and it's completely fraught with problems. And, and, and but it's technical problems. Like, is it physically impossible? No. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, how how would I record on the blockchain that I own a sixty-inch uplift desk, right? That exists right now. It, well, I, I think that that's a change of institutions. Going back to your institutions point is if you if you actually create more truth on on a ledger, and I mean this is like biology one hundred and one of his like you know the ledger of record. But the more truth exists on the ledger, the more likely we are to point our kind of like meat space institutions towards saying this is this is the shared collective belief of truth, right? Like what what, what how how is the constitution instantiated, right? It's like yeah, but it's I, don't, I don't think it's an observation problem, right? It, it's there, there isn't hard and again when you when you got a level of aggregate above bio, you know biology and chemistry and physics, capital T truth cease, ceases to exist, right? When you ask questions like something you would find in a Napoleon French biography, he the French think that Napoleon expanded or, or uh, you know disseminated the values of the revolution throughout Europe. And that we got to the Enlightenment faster because Napoleon happened. So the hundreds of thousands of deaths that he caused were justified because we got democracy faster. That actually is like a view of Napoleon inside the French historical tradition. How do you refute that? It's not totally false. It is you, the case. You read, you read an Anglo version of it and saying this, this pesky guy, all he did was kill people. Yes. Yeah, so well, actually, that's, actually, that's actually a very good point. So I've been obsessed recently with Twitter's community notes, I think previously known as Birdwatch. Um, they've come. They've come up with an algorithm to find uh, better information. Again, approximations of the truth by finding maximally divergent groups of people, in opinion, and seeing what they agree on. So this is a fascinating thing, right? So, like, get the like the most left person and the most right person, and see what they agree on. And and that's probably a better approximation of the truth because it's it's it has less less bias. So the the bird notes algorithm works by you know anyone in that community can annotate uh, a tweet that's maybe gone viral, maybe that has missing information or has uh, you know a spin that uh, misleads people, um, and then a bunch of people vote uh, on the accuracy of that information and the the most accurate information ranks at the top or most accurate note. And then the, the voting is, is uh, the voting algorithm is one where you get the people who has the least amount of uh, uh, agreeableness in their past votes. So they've always disagreed and now they're agreeing on this. So that might mean, so you, what, what you said, Dan, is like, like look at the intersection of um all the different views on Napoleon, that actually like a kind of a good approximation of, of truth. Yeah, and I mean, that's a like classic survey where if you're Antonio and you're multilingual, like you can actually read all these and then come to your own opinion versus if you only get it through one lens. And it's going back to the book I was mentioning before, which I thought it was such an interesting view of the Crusades because I had only read Western versions of it. But that's I, the thing, right? That, that Arab view of the Crusades is correct, right? In the sense that that's how they experienced it, right? And it's, it would be hard to say, oh, no, well, that's wrong. But it certainly is missing the Christian point of view. I, I don't know. I just don't think there's truth there. So speaking of writing history, when I wrote Chaos Monkeys, right, which is kind of a memoir, I tried to get it right. I spent literally two weeks going through all the Facebook messages, all the texts, all the emails, everything trying to reconstruct a few years of history, which is, by the way, it's hard to do because human memory is so faulty. 
you think, oh, things happen in order A, B, and C, and people, you know, one, two, three were in these meetings. It turns out it was actually C, B, and A never happened. And in fact, you confuse it in your mind for events D, E, and F, right? And so you rediscover all these things when you look at the cold, hard evidence in front of your face. And even that was a spotty record, right? It's like the emails and texts that I managed to, to, to retain. So to think that we're going to actually, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't doubt, Amjad, that like what you're describing is probably more correct than other mechanisms, right? In the sense that it's somewhat incrementally closer to the truth. But the thought that there is a capital T truth out there for things above the biological, I don't know. I, I, I find myself to be a little skeptical. Well, well, building on what Amjad said on the, the mechanism, there was a, a project, and, and I think it maybe still exists, and, and it hasn't worked out, but, and, and Robin Hansen's been into this stuff for a really long time, but it's like prediction markets, right? Yep. And there was a project called Augur where uh, the, the purpose of the token that you would actually own, you'd get compensated based on these kind of like prediction markets. There would be some fee that kicked out to the token holders. But the token holder's role was you'd be randomly selected out of the pool and you would have to vote on the outcome, the, the oracle of a given prediction. But to take something more concrete, it's like the, the score of the, the World Cup final, right? And so obviously the blockchain has no opinion on that. But the ability for you to resolve the prediction market via a group of, of randomly selected uh, kind of oracle voters. And the way it would work is... Um, the simplified mechanism is you would you would do a first vote of what you thought the outcome was. And if you got that wrong based on the group, you get penalized. So so there was kind of this two-part uh, voting mechanism. And I think probably that's why it didn't work. But it actually put financial incentive for the Oracle person to kind of take whatever would potentially benefit them or or maybe what their opinion is and actually try to, to you know, Keynesian beauty contest. You're guessing what everyone else is going to guess. And so you hopefully arrive more at truth and then there's economic compensation on it. So I, I've been fascinated with this. It, it hasn't worked out and for a variety of reasons, but, but I suspect that going back to what you said, Amjad, I, I do think, you know, start with Bitcoin, but just the progression of these blockchains where they can unemotionally run forever following whatever code has been written. And if you can actually design institutions and structures uh, using them, and it's going to take us a while to get there. I, I think you can actually get to some interesting um, new primitives of truth. How about that? Antonio will never get to true yeah. truth, but, and it, but you can. And it doesn't have to be a blockchain. Like even the community nodes thing. Uh, obviously, if there's more transparency, we can go out of the algorithm. That, that would be great. But I agree. It's going to be a, a lot of different things. But I, I feel like this, it, this will happen this decade where we're going to have more algorithms to try to find truth because everyone, and I mean it, everyone um, is just fed up with the spin and the lack of accurate information out there. And by the way, if Elon really wants to make Twitter successful, I think his mission, I, he got a lot of criticism for it, is try to make it the most accurate source of information is actually a great mission. There's another uh, platform that I found the other day. It's called Root Claim. It's an Israeli company, I think, and they um, built this uh, platform where they try to get the most controversial um, sort of topics that are kind of hotly debated. For example, the death of that uh, Iranian woman that uh, sparked uh, the uh, the protests. Um, uh, you, the mainstream Western media is saying it was. Uh, she was killed by the religious police. The religious police saying that didn't happen, and so they uh, they actually start with an a priori 
uh, probability of someone dying within the custody of the religious police. And so, okay, what are the percentage of people? How, how, how much did that happen? And they come up with some reasonable a prior probability. And then they start updating based on the events and the evidence. And they show you the work across um, every update. Uh, and then they land at something. It, with, with that case, they, they, they think she actually wasn't murdered. And she was actually just died of natural causes. Um, and and they, they arrived at a bunch of contrarian things that turned out to be somewhat true. For example, gain of function. They, they arrived at that in 2020. Uh, for example, um, the, um, the, uh, the Assad gassing his people. They arrived at the idea that it was actually the rebels that did that. And, and now there's more and more evidence that actually Assad didn't gas his people. That was totally Western propaganda. Um, and, um, and, um, and, um, and so, uh, and they're actually like the fact you you know they're honest is because um, you know they also looked at a bunch of like Palestinian Israeli issues and they arrive at you know things that uh, you know maybe uh, is not favorable for Israel and so you know that they're actually like uh, honest people and um, but you know th that's like a centralized group of people that are doing this but you can just sort of like crowdsource it right so if you um, marry uh, bird notes with root claim. Or if like Elon just adds this capability uh, to Twitter uh, and you have this collective truth finding or again, maybe truth is a triggering word. I don't know what to call it. Accurate information finding. That's not as buzzy, but so, some kind of accuracy, uh, crowdsource, wisdom of the crowds type of thing. I, I think uh, that's going to be amazing and people will flock to it because um, you, you're going to have a, an actual trusted source that doesn't have a centralized bias group of people behind it. Um, and um, and I, I believe whether Elon does it, uh, I believe uh, you know before 2030, maybe that's a prediction, we're going to have some source of information that ha that is heavy, heavily algorithmic that a lot more people uh, trust. It sounds to me like a great way at arriving at the consensus collective narrative. That's what I think, I mean, which it probably will. But... I don't know. Like, does it matter? Like, that we arrive at truth? At the end of the day, there's there's only like three reads of truth left, right? War, which in the West is very rare. Markets, right? Because at the end of the day, products succeed or fail. And then elections, assuming they're relatively honest, right? Everything else is basically a, a made up narrative. Does it? I think that, I think that truth is important. Um, just what? even from a spiritual point of view, like um, I heard uh, Jordan Pearson once say that suffering is when you have deluded yourself. And you're coming to the truth. So the impact of uh, delusion with reality is suffering. And I thought that was really interesting. And that really matches my experience. Like when I'm running Replit, um, like there, there are times when I'm ignoring the truth. And this is the way you, you would actually, uh, you know, you would, you would fail, right? A, a lot of times, uh, actually companies suffer from delusions more than anything else. Um, I remember uh, one of the cool things about running Replit is we have all these uh, you know, young people building things. And so whatever they're building on, uh, I have to pay attention to because it, it must be cool. By the way, Farcaster, there's a lot of activity there. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and um, and so I remember Discord bots was like started becoming a really big thing on, on Replit in 2017. 
remember meeting Jason, who's an amazing CEO of, of Discord. But when I went to meet him and um, I saw the office, the office was all about gaming. Like there were um, there were land games uh, there. They had all these uh, memorabilia about gaming. The office was structured in a gaming way. They, they were a gaming company. To me, as an outsider, they were a social network. And so I asked them, like, when are you going to add like more social network thing? It's like, no, no, we're focused on gaming. We have a gaming store coming. We're going to compete with Steam. And they eventually released that, and, and it flopped. And now they kind of pivoted to a social network and, and kind of Discord's thriving its general purpose. But as an outsider, like I saw that like this thing is like a general purpose social network, but they had a delusion of the company. And I don't want to ascribe too much to that just one interaction, but that's how I felt. Uh, and, and then it got me thinking like, what kind of delusions do we have at our company? What stories are we telling ourselves that are wrong? And then the moment you realize the truth, that's a huge moment of suffering because you lost a lot of time, right? You regret some of that time. You uh, There's all these emotions that come up. Maybe you have to fire people to lay off people to kind of make that pivot. And there are so many things that, that need to happen. And I think the truth is important because that's how you succeed in the world is, is truth. But that's because a startup is a business experiment that you run with other people's money. That's the nature of a startup, right? You, you are testing your model of the world against reality in the sense of do people pay for Replit or not? And if they start not paying for it, then clearly your model of the world is very mistaken in some way, right? That, that's my point, right? You're, you, you're, you're engaging in an experiment against Mr. Market all the time in building Replit. And, that, and that's what you're right. You have, you have, there is capital T truth there. <laughs> Replit actually either does well or poorly or, or Forecaster does well or poorly. But for most people, that's why truth doesn't sell, right? If you look at the history of journalism, it's never about the, very little of it is actually selling truth. The, the first journals actually were truth. It was shipping reports in Northern Italy because, of course, merchants needed to know what ships were coming in or not. They were wrestling with a very real market reality. But beyond that, journalism has never really been about truth. It's been about juicy narratives, as the New York Times itself put it recently, right? And so that, that's why I think if you go outside of the realm of elections and war and the markets, I think the market, I think the demand for truth is very small, a lot smaller than we think, I think. Yeah, but it is interesting to think under Amjad's framework there is that if Twitter figures out their product is is the source of truth, then they get to actually test that with the market. Now, there's probably some narrative component to to that where it ends up. But I, I do think the and I mentioned this on the last episode where we were talking about polling and, and how Elon's just been using kind of, the you know, Vox Populi, Vox Day. But right. <laughs> if, if you actually do get to some level of authentication on, on per user basis, right? So say, okay, you can only vote on this if you've uploaded a, a you know, valid driver's license. I, I do think that that becomes really powerful. That's very just useful. relative to, and, and the, the example I always cite is just like the Wall Street Journal says, oh, Wall Street Journal, NBC poll of a thousand people. And yeah, you can argue the statistics, law of big numbers actually doesn't matter if you add more people. There's something really powerful about having 10 plus million verified accounts weigh in on something in a public kind of way. And I think we, we've we had the capability of doing this from a technology standpoint, but actually just not the kind of willingness to play around with it. And and, and I don't know, like I, I think a, a world where Twitter is actually far more focused on truth as a mission and, and not necessarily a political agenda or anything like that, I, I think is a world that's better. And, and this is coming from someone who's trying to build Something that's a competing thing to it, but but I, I fundamentally it's it's an important public square that we should have being run in the best possible way that is the most valuable to society type way while still being a business, right? 
was about to ask Dan, when are you shipping polling on Farcaster? Gated by an NFT that says you can vote in the poll, for example. It's on it's on the roadmap. Um, Is it? Ah, yeah, we, yeah, we need to hire more people. Maybe if you loosen the L7 bar, you get there. <laughs> Team and Navy Dan SEALs. Team and Navy SEALs first, and then then you can build out the rest of the the military. I'm you just floating. We sent out our first two offer letters today, and both got accepted, and so we managed to hire. Congratulations! Them. That's yeah, that's yeah, always congrats. exciting. Uh, you, you should post some uh, Revlet bounties. Um, I think you might find some some people to work with that way. Um, actually, the lead engineer on Copilot from GitHub, he quit GitHub. He's starting a company. He posted a bounty um, to get something done, and he found his founding engineer that way on on Revlet. And so um, we're, wow, we're seeing a lot. That's really, really interesting cool. success story. I, I, I definitely think we're going to look into that. I just have to convince you to accept ETH. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, if, if it's money, we'll accept it. Yeah. There you go. If, if it's money. Perfect. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Um, shall, we, uh, shall we wrap on that? Um, Amjad, thank you for, for being our special guest. It's been a great episode. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's really fun. We could go forever. Thanks a lot, guys. If, if, if you guys will humor me, I, I want 30 seconds. We were talking about Eliza Yudkowsky. I just want to say that, um, and I'll, I'll show this on the screen. Uh, Ayla tweeted a, a month ago, Ayla, who needs no introduction, of course, how she was lamenting that um, people are asking her to lower her romantic standards. And I don't know if you saw this, but Eliza jumped in and replied. He said, if you could be satisfied by mortal men, you would be satisfied with mortal reasoning and mortal society, and you would not have gravitated towards the distant orbits of my own presence. Man, she's not going to fuck you. you She's not going (laughs) to (laughs) fuck you. <laughs> Sorry, did yeah, I just? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think the next meme you should put up there is the hopium meme, where <laughs> yeah, Pepe right. is, is inhaling the hopium, yeah. okay. or, or the trick. Uh, like on, on that note, I love how Ayla is like every EA dude's sexual fantasy. You just know that that is like the maximum expected value sexual trait in their minds. Somehow, Ayla. Yeah. For the record, well, I have no interest in any of his topics. <laughs> she's throwing in the shower stuff just to just to make things interesting. I actually um, like Ava, by the way, just to be clear. But yeah, well, yeah, the, the, actually, the, the poop, uh, the poop stat is more surprising than the shower stat. <laughs> oh yeah, I love the right, this, right? this is what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> quantified self. Everyone, everyone was hoping this is where the world we live in. <laughs> we we need to poop to rage, uh, re- We need to poop to uh, shower. Uh, uh, sort of bio <laughs> stats for everyone on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe that's a forecasting feature. <laughs> Oh, we got. Um, okay, this is great. Let, let's wrap. Uh, have a good I'm John. Thanks for joining us. This was awesome. Yeah, this was fantastic. Thanks, I'm yeah, Pleasure. Awesome. All right. Enjoy Shabbat, Antonio. <laughs> yeah. Show me Shabbos. Show me Shabbos. Show, 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 show. Okay. Yes. All okay. right. Take care. See you guys. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts 
to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.